everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome in to a brand new episode of the Believe and Royals podcast. I'm Alex Hughes. There is Jeremy Danner. And joining us on the podcast today, very special guest, former Royals manager, Ned Yost. Ned, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. This Royals team right now has so much excitement, and a lot of people are comparing them to the 2014-2015 Royals teams. Do you see that comparison that people are making? Um, you know what? I see. I compare more to the 2013 team where, um, you know, when we really started to take off, where we got our feet underneath us, we really started to believe that, uh, you know, we were a pretty good team, uh, had a, you know, a tremendous group of talent uh, with more talent coming. So I kind of see it as, as that, um, you know, I, I, we've been all excited with the way they've played so far this year. And, uh, you know, the pitching's been better than I thought it would. We knew that the, uh, that the offense would be good, and uh, it's been exciting to watch. How much attention are you paying to the games, uh, you know, around the league right now? How much am I paying attention? Yeah. Um, I'm paying attention. You know, it's the first time I, I've paid for the, uh, the MLB channel, so I get to watch games. I don't watch them. I don't sit at my TV and watch them all day long. But I do get up every morning, and I go to the uh, MLB website, and I do look at I do look at all the scores, and um, I do sit and watch bits and pieces, sometimes most of it, sometimes a couple innings of every one of our games, uh, the Royals games. I do watch a lot of that, um, you know, to see how guys are doing. Uh, But, uh, you know, it's been fun kind of just getting back into it. Last year, I didn't pay any attention to it. Uh, This year, I paid a little bit more attention to it, but like I said, I'm not, I'm not spending four hours on the internet uh, paying attention to what's going on right now. So you played in the big leagues for the Milwaukee Brewers. So when did it first get drawn on you that you might want to manage baseball? Oh, I didn't, it, not till I was done playing. I didn't even think about it. Um, I, I had no idea about uh, what I was going to do when I got out of, uh, when I got out of baseball, uh, it was 19, uh, 86 87 right in there I was I bounced between the big leagues and AAA the year before and didn't really want to do that so went to spring training got released and instead of looking for an you know another job in baseball I went home trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life um you know I went to junior college for uh you know two years but I didn't really have much of a degree and after two weeks at home, um, I got a phone call or I was gone. My wife got a phone call. And when I got home, she said, uh, somebody called you today. I said, well, who was it? She goes, uh, some guy named Hank Aaron. So <laughs> I'm like, all right, well, that's a joke, right? Well, the next day I got a phone call. I was home and it was Hank Aaron. And Hank was a farm director for the Atlanta Braves, said that they had some uh, 
really young pitching prospects in double A and they were looking for a veteran catcher with experience to go work with them. So, you know, I thought about, you know, it, it, it could be fun, um, you know, to kind of get into the coaching aspect, the player coach uh, aspect of it for a while. And uh, it was close. It was six hours away. It was in Greenville, South Carolina. I thought, well, you know, if I don't like it, I could always come home. I was living in Jackson, Mississippi at that time. And um, so I went and we'll come to find out that the young pitching prospects that they were talking about were Tom Glavin, Kent Merker, Pete, you know, Tommy Green, Pete Smith. They had Jeff Blauser, Mark Lemke, David Justice, Ronnie Gant. All those kids were on that team. So, uh, you know, it was all the, the kids that were the nucleus of such a great run uh, for the Atlanta Braves. Uh, you know, going to the World Series five times, it was just special. But those kids, you could just see they were just immense with talent. And two years I did that, two years as a player coach. And after that, I'm like, I'm done playing. This is the playing part's not fun for me anymore. The coaching part is fun for me. Uh, and um, told them that I wanted to get into, I wanted to get into managing. And Bobby Dews at that time was the farm director, was, you know, the farm director Hank was still the farm director but Bobby was kind of running everything and Bobby called and said look we want you to be a pitching coach and I said I'm not going to be a pitching coach you know I don't know enough about pitching uh you know I'm, I'm going to manage or I'm not going to do anything and and actually had a couple of offers and the Braves came back the next next day and said yeah you can manage so uh, managed three years in Sumter, South Carolina, and enjoyed every second of it. When you um, when you were working for the big league club, working with Bobby Cox, how did that shape you as a manager, and, and what philosophies did that instill in you, and how did that sort of meld with the way you viewed the game at the time? Everything. It meant everything. Um, after three years of, of experiencing managing myself, especially young kids, you know, it was more development. It wasn't really managing. It was managing to develop a young player more than managing to win because I knew uh, that, the, that that team was really, really close to winning and we had to develop these young players. So when I got to the big leagues with Bobby in 1991, you know, I made a, a point, you know, I told myself that I was going to pay attention to everything that he did. I mean, pay attention to every move he made. I'm going to listen and and do everything that, uh, you know, pay attention to everything that he does. So for 12 years, it was a, the best education that a player could get or a, a coach could get to prepare him for managing, not only how to handle, you know, a pitching, uh, a pitching staff. For eight years, I was a bullpen coach, four years a third base coach. So for eight years, I caught every side session that Greg Maddox, Tommy Glavin, and John Smoltz threw along with everybody else. Uh, and then for four years, I got to sit next to Bobby and watch him manage games. So it prepared me uh, as a manager how to handle a pitching staff eight years uh, as a bullpen coach, then how to handle a game four years watching everything Bobby did. And it got to the point offensively where I knew every move Bobby was going to make, you know, before he made it. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, that was what was so fun was to be able to read his mind and know his style of play, what he was going to do in certain situations. And uh, I think another big thing that I learned from Bobby is how to handle the press, uh, how to handle uh, uh, the players in, in all situations. And it was a tremendous education. And, uh, you know, Bobby, Bobby Cox, uh, you know, helped me be able to manage for 17 years in the big leagues. 
Ned, I think a lot of people think when you are a GM at the major league level or a manager at the major league level, all you do is look at stats and order a lineup. But yes, that's a part of it, but it's more so managing people as well. I think that's a big thing that you don't really realize until you get into the game. Is that something you realize when you're working with Bobby? Oh, no doubt. Uh, no doubt. The way Bobby handled people. And I mean, you can't come to Atlanta and talk to anybody that has come across Bobby Cox and not think that he's wonderful. He treated everybody the same. It didn't matter if you were a superstar player or the guy that worked in the tunnel at the stadium or the guy that worked at the parking lot. I mean, he just, he, he treated everybody with tremendous respect and everybody loved him for it. So it's all, all about managing people. It's all about trying to get the best out of a player. It's all about reinforcing the positive with them. It's about creating uh, uh, discipline, discipline for the player. It's about creating organization, uh, you know, for the player. They, they, they strive to be organized and they love discipline. You just have to provide it for them. So, uh, you know, yes, it, the X's and O's are, are a big part of it, but, but I think more importantly, the way that you handle players uh, and prepare them for success is a bigger part of it. A minute ago, you talked about, you know, noticing or, or having that feeling that we're about to be good when you're in Atlanta. When, when a manager starts having that feeling, is everyone on that page or the players seeing that too? And, and how did that compare to when you realized that we had a, a shot in 2013, 2014, and 2015? Yeah, I think, I think they, they finally realized that for them uh, as a group, we took it down in, in 2013 to the last week. Now, for me personally, my experience has always been with Atlanta, with Milwaukee, uh, that it takes about two and a half years from the time you get a group of kids together to the time they really start to take off. And that was the way it was in Milwaukee and Atlanta. These kids came up and took them two, two and a half years. And all of a sudden, 91, they took off. In Milwaukee, it was the same thing. At about the two and a half year mark, they took off. I mean, they were a, a Ricky Weeks and Prince Fielder, Billy Hall, Benny Sheets, all the Corey Hart, all these kids came up together. Boom, they, they took off. So, you know, my mindset was in 2013, about the all-star break was going to be that two and a half year mark. And, I thought, okay, I started getting excited because we were playing okay to that point, got to the all-star break and flew into Yankee stadium. We had a three game series uh, before the all-star break uh, happened. We were three games under 500. And I remember thinking, okay, we're going to come in here. We're going to sweep them. We're going to be at 500. We're going to take off the second half. We're at that two and a half year mark. Well, you know, as things go, we went into Yankee stadium and got swept. So now we're six games under 500 going into the all-star break. And I remember thinking, well, maybe it'll take this group a little bit longer. But from that point, from the all-star break to the end of 2014, nobody won more games than the Kansas City Royals. So, yes, it was at that point where they absolutely took off. Took it to the last week in 2013, knowing that, uh, you know, we, we, you know, we were right there. We just couldn't, we just couldn't fight enough to get to that wild card spot. But in 2014, we knew that we had a chance to compete. So, you know, we, you start changing philosophies a little bit. You go from developing in 2013. Now you think you got a chance to win. You go to winning mode. So our group played really, really well. We got into the last 
uh, you know, week of the season, we were right there. We were, we were trying to, to, you know, fight for the division. We were trying to fight for the wild card. And I remember the last series we uh, went in, we had clinched the wild card. We had clinched home field advantage in the wild card, but going into the last game, we still had a chance to tie Detroit. Uh, you know, they had a one game lead on us. We still had a chance to tie Detroit for the division. Now, for me, I thought that was really, really important. So, you know, we, we were, we really were focused on trying to win that last game, Detroit lose, and then go to a one game playoff with them. Uh, you know, our, our the worst case scenario would be that we'd be the wild card. Best case scenario was, you know, we'd won the division. We didn't have to go through that wild card scenario. So, um, we just knew that uh, uh, that would happen. Of course, as it came in, we ended up losing the last day. They won anyway. So here comes the wild card game. And um, the thing that really changed the tide for us, I think, was when we were in the wild card game, uh, it was like the seventh inning. We were down three or four runs to John Lester, who we hadn't beaten forever. And the the, the boys came in, uh, you know, to hit in the bottom of the seventh. And all of a sudden I could hear a rumble down in the far end of the dugout. And then it got louder and it got louder and it got louder. And these guys, I mean, they were adamant. They were down there screaming, let's go, let's go. This guy's not beating us, not tonight. We're not losing this game. Let's go. We got this game. And we hadn't, you know, beaten John Lester ever. Well, sure enough, here we go. We score a couple of runs. Boom, we ended up tying it up. Boom, we ended up winning. But the point to that was, was that all, everything that happened in 13, everything that happened in 14, you know, kind of, uh, you know, came together in that wild card game. And they went from thinking they could win to believing and knowing they could win. And that's a huge, that's the final step. When you get to the point where you absolutely know in your heart that you can compete and you can win instead of thinking that you can do it. And that point, seventh inning, I mean, it was a defined moment that, boom, they knew all of a sudden they believed, they believed in each other, they believed in how good they were, and then they went on an 8 no run to start the playoffs. So, you know, they had that belief in, uh, you know, the playoff scenarios in, in 14 and going into 15, which was huge. So when you talk about when the players believe – and the coaching staff, I'm sure, already have believed it at that point. So what's your role as a manager when the players finally figure out that, okay, we got something special here? What's your role in that position? Well, it, look, it, it's taken – it took two and a half years to get them there, you know, and we kept positively reinforcing how good they were, that they, you know, that they could win. We kept doing this. We kept doing this. We kept doing this. And so when they finally believe, it's like, all right, let's go. We had taught them – how to play the game to win for, for years. And once we got to that part, that point, it was almost like you turned them loose. I mean, it was like the, the final stretch of a horse race. You know, you hit them one time, boom, and they're gone. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, there wasn't a lot of things that we, were, that we were doing to get in their way. You know, we would, we would not put on bunts. They bunted on their own. They would move runners. They would hit and run on their own because they knew – they had the, the confidence to know when to steal a base, when to punt, when to hit and run. Because we, if for, for years, we had taught them all these things. We would give them keys, uh, you know, when they're on first base to look for when they're stealing. We would tell them when the percentages were in our favor. But, uh, you know, they understood 
the game. They they learned how to play the game to win. And I think the smartest thing we did was we just kind of took our hands off them and just let them run. One of the things that I, I noticed about about you, I, I was fortunate enough to be on the field for batting practice a couple times in those 2014 and 2015 seasons. And every game that I, I saw you do this, you'd walk over and say thank you to every person who was on the field and thank them for being at that game. And uh, if a kid had a ball, you'd offer to sign it. And I just thought that was a really cool thing to do. And I, I thought it was something you didn't have to do, but I thought it was really cool that you did that. And to me, that's what made those teams special. And I think that's that, that's carried through in Kansas City baseball is that it really is uh, this this group effort. Yeah, I'm, I'm not playing the game, but when I'm in the stands, it's, it's a we thing. And I think that's a really cool uh, mark that you, you left on the culture. Well, I thought it was important. And our players did a great job with it too, you know. Um, I made a point, just like you said, every day, those people that, that were on the field were there because they knew somebody or they, you know, community relations or somebody. And, you know, I always made a point and generally it would be like going into the last group. I'd let everybody get there and I'd go say hello to everybody. Uh, I would sign autographs. Our players would do it too. When they would come off, they would, uh, you know, they would walk by and say, and say hello. And, you know, it was just, it, it, we felt that Kansas city was such a, was such a special city uh, and the players loved Kansas city, Kansas city loved the players and they felt it. And, you know, I think that they felt like they were playing their hearts out every day for our fans. And I think they felt that our fans appreciated it. And there was, you know, there was a, a closeness between the two. Ned, you suffered a major fall now almost three or four years ago now. How did that change your outlook on not only a game of baseball, but your life? It didn't change my outlook one bit. Um, you know, I, I didn't realize, uh, uh, you know, how close I came to, to not making it, um, you know. Uh, but, you know, I've always tried to live uh, a life, uh, you know, that understood who I am, understood what I'm about understood where all my gifts and blessings came from. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, it wasn't like a moment where, you know, God, if you get me through this, I'll change my life. At that point, you know, I would walk in, people don't really know this, but I would walk into the locker room every single day. I'd always be the first one there. And I would walk in, turn the lights on, and I would walk around that locker room and say little prayers for every player in that room. You know, I pray for their health. I pray that for their families. And I would just pray that they continued to work hard. So, um, you know, I didn't feel, uh, you know, like it was a life-changing event. I was glad that uh, I survived it, um, but it didn't change my life um, really much at all. I want to go back to that, uh, that walk-off Grand Slam that Justin Maxwell hit on the last game of, of 2013. I, I was in the stands that day and we didn't want to go anywhere. We wanted, we wanted the season to begin right after that. Did you feel that momentum carry over to 2014 and 2015? Um, you know, I just think that after that Grand Slam, we went on the road and we still had a yeah. chance. That's know? right. Yeah, we, it was last home game. That's right. My bad. Yeah. Yeah, it was our last home game. We still That's had right. a chance. So, we, you know, we were still really focused on doing everything that we could. But, you know, we felt like going into 2014 that we were close, you know, that we were really, really close. So it, that was a good winner. It was a good feeling knowing coming back that uh, – you know, we had we still had, you know, 162 game season, which is a, like a marathon. Uh, you had to keep everybody healthy, but we felt like we were ready to compete. Would there be anything if you were commissioner for the day that would 
change anything about the game or do you like it the way it is? No, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things, um, you know, I, there's some things that I like and then there's some things that I don't like. And, uh, you know, I actually like the seven inning doubleheader rule. I actually like, you know, starting the man at second base uh, in extra innings. It saves your pitching staff. Um, but, you know, I just think that this game uh, and, and uh, I guess you're a product of your environment and what you came up with. And, you know, I came up in, in this game, uh, you know, where, you know, there was no fraternization. There was no celebrating uh, out, you know, in public. It, we had tremendous celebrations inside the locker room with, but not showing anybody up. And, it, you know, I just think that the game's changed a lot in that respect. And it, it's a different, it's a different generation now. And they seem to appreciate that. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm for that. If they like it, it's not for me, but um, you know, if it's for them, that that's fine. But uh, you know, I just think that, uh, you know, the game survived 150 years or whatever, being the national pastime playing the game where, you know, there was more, uh, you know, there was more strategy in the game. There wasn't everybody just stepping up there and trying to hit homers and guys trying to blow, you know, hundred mile an hour fastballs down the middle, you know, it was more of a game where you executed your fastball. You had the ability as a pitcher to manipulate the timing of the hitter the hitter really, you know, did not want to strike out. They wanted to put the ball in play. They would hit and run. They would bunt. They would steal more. Um, but with the shift, the way that it is now, it's kind of uh, really um, lowering the percentage of singles uh, uh, from what they used to be. Now, without as many singles, the strategy leaves because now nobody's thinking about bunting. Nobody's thinking about stealing. Nobody's thinking about hitting and running. And Guys are just thinking about hitting home or so. The game's changed uh, changed a lot for me. Uh, I like the old style of play, but, um, you know, time marches on as the old song goes. How proud are you of, uh, of Whit Merrifield and what he's been able to do since he came up? I'm, be I'm very proud of Whit. You know, I always kind of prided, prided myself as understanding who players are and, and being able to evaluate talent. And I felt like I've never missed on a player. You know, it, I've, I feel like I've never missed on a player till Witt came along. And Witt was the one guy that I missed on. I mean, I thought Witt would be, uh, you know, a good little utility player at the big league level. I didn't never dream that he would be an all-star or the best hitter in the game, uh, which he has proven to be the last couple of years. And my only consolation is that everybody else missed on him too. You know, Witt had the, Witt had the ability to be, Rule five drafted twice because he went on the roster and no organization saw that luckily for us. Um, but I'm just extremely proud of, of, of Witt. Witt knew, Witt knew, Witt knew all along that he was that type of player. Uh, you know, we always thought that he would be a, a decent player, but Witt knew he would be special. And, um, you know, hats off and credit to him. I'm, I'm just really, really proud. Uh, you know, that he got his opportunity, took advantage of it, and look where he's at now. Ned, also, this kind of goes into this, uh, the follow-up, but what's your relationship like with Dayton Moore? Because Dayton and you are two of the best baseball minds, in my opinion, in the game. So what was it like to be able to work with him, especially through those, those great years in Kansas City? 
Uh, it was it was the best. I, you know, we were, t- you know, I'm still doing a little bit. I I flew to spring training and uh, spent five days in spring training this year. Then came home for a little bit and uh, flew to the alternate camp, the alternate site for, uh, you know, five days to watch the young pitching prospects, Bobby Wood Jr. Uh, and Dayton and I still talk, um, you know, quite a bit uh, uh, on the phone. Um, and I will be making trips to Omaha and Northwest and to the minor league affiliates, just kind of watching, uh, you know, the young players, but, you know, we spent 10 years together and never disagreed ever one time. I mean, never, we always were on the same page. Uh, you know, if he felt, uh, something very, very strongly, I'm like, I'm in with you. Uh, you know, it was just a special, special relationship. And I just feel that, you know, the relationship between the manager and general manager is crucial. You've got to have that really, really good trust working relationship where you trust each other uh, and, and each knows that they're giving their, their 100% best effort to the organization. And it was a tremendous relationship, something that I really, really enjoyed uh, as much as anything. Ned, I think the last question that I have for you is simple. If a 15-year-old kid walked up to Ned Yost right now and said, Ned, baseball is boring to me. I'm never going to watch it. What are you saying to that 15-year-old kid? I'd say, let's go fishing. <laughs> I mean, what do you got? I mean, you know, I don't know what to say. Uh, you know, um, uh, you know, kid's got to get out and he's got to play it. And I think the game still is uh, – you know, you take a look around. I mean, there's kids playing baseball everywhere you look. So the game is still, you know, very, very popular. In Kansas City, I think, uh, you know, it's important that young kids can love their baseball team. And I, I don't think you can go down the street uh, very far without seeing a Kansas City Royals hat or a Kansas City Royal T-shirt or Kansas City Royal jersey. In the same respect, you can't go far without seeing a Chiefs jersey either. I mean, they, they, it's a phenomenal sports town. They love their sports. They love their football. They love their soccer. They love their baseball. They love NASCAR. Uh, it's a special, special city. But, um, you know, I just think that kids, uh, you know, kids still love the game and they just need to play the game and um, to enjoy it as much as I think we all did. Well, Ned, thanks so much for taking your time this morning to come on the Believe in Royals podcast. We appreciate you. My pleasure. You guys have a great day. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.